Good morning. Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, I haven't been with you guys the last few weeks. I uh, had a chance to go on vacation uh, to where pretty much everyone tries to go on vacation, Toledo, Ohio. So that's where I've been for the last couple weeks. And uh, that's where my wife's family is from. And so uh, we just felt like with it being fall break, it was a great time to get back there and connect with her family and enjoy this thing. I don't know if you've heard of this thing. It's called fall. You heard of fall? Um, and so that's a real thing in certain places. And so we got to see it. Leaves changing. And we went and picked apples and went to the pumpkin patch and wore sweatshirts and did all sorts of things that you get to do during fall. And it was really uh, just a really great time. I turned 40 while we were there. And so that was nice to have a birthday. Thank you. And uh, the trip ended with a wedding. Uh, my uh, wife's youngest cousin, I think youngest cousin, got married. And um, I actually got, had the privilege of helping officiate all four of Molly's siblings' weddings. And so uh, this cousin, Megan, had grown up going to all these weddings of her cousins, and I was always officiating. And so she said, Luke, would you officiate me and Anthony's wedding? And so I said, yeah, I would love to do that. And uh, so that's how the thing concluded. And I got to tell you, I'm good at doing weddings. <laughs> Very good at this. And I've done a lot now, and I have a whole system down, and it's quite effective. And uh, people at the end of every wedding say, wow, that's like the best wedding message I've ever heard. And I say, thank you. And I think, I know. Like, it's really pretty good, you know? And, and I actually have a few different wedding messages I use. The reality is people's expectations are so low. So it's like <laughs> pole vaulting over an anthill, right? It's not very difficult. Um, but uh, this particular wedding message that I did is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, I have a few different ones that I do. And um, in this particular one, I was talking about kind of the just what marriage is, just a reminder of, of what marriage is. And so this actually relates to the passage that we're going to look at here today. And so I, I talk in this wedding message about how uh, marriage, uh, God gave us marriage to, to show friendship, that friendship's one of the best gifts of marriage, how uh, God created marriage for intimacy. Uh, we think usually of just sexual intimacy, but it's kind of the oneness, two people becoming one flesh. And then I get to this third part, and so you have to just kind of imagine, imagine we're in this nice, pretty setting, and there's the bride and the groom, and we're all looking nice, and I, I'll read you this kind of third point. This is my, this is my favorite part of this sermon, so uh, of this wedding sermon. And so I'll read this to you, and, and listen closely, because this actually connects pretty significantly with what God is doing in Exodus. In Exodus, God is entering into a kind of marriage covenant with his people. And so listen, listen to kind of how I frame this. I say this. The third reason that God created marriage is to be a reflection. The Bible says that God created marriage to show the world a picture of how he loves his people. We are insatiably drawn to love stories. We read them in books, we watch them in movies, we dream about them for our own lives. Think about your favorite movies. They probably have the same ingredients. Love, adventure, danger, heroism, romance, sacrifice, the battle of good and evil, insurmountable odds, and unlikely heroes. All these stories follow the same basic storyline. Things were once good, then something terrible happened. And now a great battle must be fought or a journey taken. And at just the right moment, what feels like the last possible moment, a hero comes and sets things right, falls in love, and all is good again. It's true of every fairy tale, every myth. 
every Western, every epic, just about every story you can think of. Have you ever wondered why? Every story, great and small, shares the same essential structure because every story we tell borrows its power from a larger story, a story woven into the fabric of our being. They all borrow from the true story, the story that there is a God who made us, who's been ignored and rejected by us, and who in Jesus Christ has not only risked his life, but sacrificed it to win us back. Jesus is the hero of the universe who gives himself up to win the bride he loves. The Bible even uses this kind of language, describing Jesus as a groom and his people as a bride. Therefore, marriage is designed to represent how God loves his people. People should be able to look at your marriage, Megan and Anthony, and see a reflection of how truly and deeply and sacrificially God loves them. That's pretty good, right? Like that's, not, that's not bad. Yeah. If you're already married, sorry, I can't do it again. Uh, but but, but that, that image, that last part, marriage is designed to represent how God loves his people. Marriage is a covenant. And the reason this is actually relevant to what we're looking at here today is because beginning in chapter 19 and going through the middle, uh, kind of really the next four or five chapters, it's a section where God is bringing his people into a covenant. It's really a kind of marriage picture. There's a marriage sort of process that is actually happening in this text, which is what we're going to see. If you haven't been with us, what we've been saying throughout the book of Exodus is that uh, Exodus is a book about a God who makes himself known in a world that had long forgotten him. And in Exodus 1 through 18, God had been making himself known to Israel. He had redeemed them and rescued them out of slavery to Egypt. He had initiated all these plagues. There was the Passover. There was the crossing of the Red Sea. The people are out of slavery. God is providing for them manna in the desert and and food and water. God is providing. God is organizing their leadership structure. God is revealing himself to Israel. But now, this is a kind of turning point when we get to chapter 19, because from chapter 19 to the end of the book, in chapter 40, God is going to reveal himself through Israel to the rest of the world. God is setting aside his people, and he says, I want you to be my faithful covenant bride, and I want people to be able to look at the relationship that you and I have, Israel. I want the rest of the nations to look in at how we live together and go, wow, there is no one like God. That's what's going on in this whole section. And this, these chapters that we're looking at here today kind of kick that off. Now, this section is often thought of, this week and next week, is thought of as the giving of the law. You have the Ten Commandments, and then you have all these laws. But I really think it's much more helpful and much more appropriate to God's heart to say these are not like laws that are given by an impersonal Congress or judge. This is covenant entered into by a God who wants to be a faithful husband to his people. And so that's what we're going to look at here together today. So we read a moment ago Exodus chapter 20. We're actually going to go back to Exodus 19 because that's where we'll kind of begin this. So if you have your Bible, swipe over to Exodus 19 or turn the page and we're going to look at that. And what I want you to see in this passage is that really this whole thing is kind of following the process of a marriage proposal, an engagement, and then a wedding with vows. A proposal, an engagement, 
and then vows. So that's what we're going to look at here together. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right into it. Father in heaven, we come to you now, Lord, thankful that you pursue us, that you love us, that you chase us down. God, thank you that you are faithful, even when we're not. And God, I pray that as we look at your word here, that we would see this covenant relationship that you're forming with us to be actually a gift, to be a blessing, to be something that glorifies you and benefits us. Help us to see it that way. Help us to understand your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so first, we have the proposal, right? So just picture this. This is the process of of God marrying his people. First, you have the proposal. It says at the beginning of chapter 19 that Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. Uh, They've encamped in the wilderness. Now they're encamping by the mountain of God. And it says uh, this in verse 3. The Lord called out to him, to Moses, on the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? This is now God. He's getting down on his knee. Honey, you know I love you. You know, we've been together for a while now, and I don't even know how to describe how much I love you, but I hope you've seen it through some of just how I've tried to treat you with honor and love and respect. That's that part, okay? And then it says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God saying, Israel, I love you. You've seen my love. Now here's what I want. Will you be my treasured possession? Will you be a kingdom of priests? Will you be a holy nation? That's the proposal. Now, these phrases probably need to be unpacked just a little bit. The first one is treasured possession. Now, here's a, here's a question I kind of want to ask, and I do this from time to time because I feel like a lot of us just need this refresher and we need to kind of see it this way. Here's what I want you to imagine. I want to imagine you're going throughout your day and uh, someone shows up at your door and says, hey, God wants to see you. He wants to see you in his office. Now, as you walk to God's office, And you open that door, what do you imagine the expression on his face is? Maybe turn to the person next to you and make make the face. What what expression on the face would you... This would be hard because you're all laughing now. This feels uncomfortable. See, see, I, I think for a lot of us, what we imagine is that if we were to open that door, we'd probably open it really slowly... And God would be far away and he'd be behind the desk, but even from the door, we'd be able to see his face. And it would probably look like this. And we sort of imagine that the first words out of his mouth would be, you again. Isn't that how we think of it? And yet here's what this passage says. What God wants for his people is that they would be his treasured possession. 
The idea would be that we would just barely start to turn the knob and God would spring up from around his desk. He'd open the door and he'd bear hug us and say, it's so good to see you again. That's the image that God wants his people to have. Not that we are to be sort of always standing off at a distance, but that rather because of God's faithfulness, because of how God has rescued us, because of who God is and how he loves, that we would draw near to him. A treasured possession of God. This is amazing, right? Because if you know the teaching of the scripture at all, you know that because of our sin, we are enemies of God. We're alienated from God. We've cut ourselves off from him. Right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, God has every right to be scowling at you and angry with you because you've belittled him. You've dishonored him. You've put yourself on the throne of your life instead of him. And he's the one that made you and sustains you and gives you every breath. And yet here's the grace and mercy of God that he's saying, in Christ, I've given you what you need. I'll be the God who rescues you like an eagle swoops down to rescue its baby in trouble. I've come for you in Christ. Now, will you turn from your sin? Will you embrace me? Will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you be my treasured possession? Isn't that an amazing offer? That that's what God wants. But it doesn't stop there. The next two phrases in verse six are also significant. And these two kind of go together. In verse six, it says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, when you hear the word priest, you probably, uh, what pops in your head is a Roman Catholic priest, uh, right? Someone in all black, but with the kind of the white collar. And I don't know what pictures you kind of associate with that, but that's not the image here. The image here that you're going to see throughout the rest of the scriptures is that the priest was the human being who represented the people to God and represented God to the people. The, the, the person who represented the people to God and represented God to the people. You actually see this even just with the clothing. So Aaron is the guy who's gonna be the first high priest of Israel. And you see that he represents the people to God because he actually wears this ephod, this kind of vest that has all these stones. And on a couple of the stones are written all the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when Aaron goes into the presence of God, he is bearing up representing the people to God. But you also see that Aaron is representing God to the people. And the way you see that is that a lot of his garments are made out of the exact same materials that are in the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God himself dwells. And so Aaron plays this role, the priest plays this role where they're representing God to the people and the people to God. So here's what God is offering here. Here's what the proposal is. Hey, Israel, I've saved you. I've rescued you. You don't need to earn that. You don't need to achieve that. I already did it. And now here's what I want. Follow me, live with me, and you'll be my treasured possession, and you will be a representative of me to the world. Here's what God's saying. If you kind of think in the marriage language, God's saying, I'd like you to take my last name. And we go, great. That's amazing. Do you people called by God's name? What a gift. 
And so that's what Israel's called to be. The amazing news for those of us who aren't ethnically Jewish but who are followers of Christ is that this is not just an offer for Israel as a nation. This is actually an offer for anyone whose hope is in Christ. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The apostle Peter writes this, but you are a chosen race. He's talking now to the church. He's talking to those of you who are followers of Christ. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, God did not rescue you just so your sins could be forgiven and you could go to heaven. That's gloriously part of the equation, amen? But that, it doesn't, it's, that's not it. God rescued you so that you would, through your deeds, through your words, through your love, through your boldness, through your sacrifice, so that you would be a kingdom of priests, his gloriously treasured possession, proclaiming his excellencies to a world that doesn't know him. The way we have kind of talked about this here at Gateway is that we're God's pink spoon people. And uh, some of you that have been around a while, you're like, oh, he's talking about this again. Yeah, I am. Because there's a lot of you that actually haven't heard this before. A lot of you have just been joining us in the last four or five months. And, and it's important for you to kind of get this image because it's really shaped us. It's key for us here at Redemption Gateway. We talk that we're God's pink spoon people. This is just another way of saying we're a kingdom of priests. Here's, here's where the imagery comes from. You ever go to an ice cream shop and they've got the uh, pink spoons. And you, you go there and you say, oh man, I, I'd really, I'd like a sample of that. Is that Rocky Road? Oh, that looks good. Oh, is that, is that cookie dough? Oh, that looks good. Can I, is it okay if I try both? They go, sure. And you're like, yes. Maybe I'll just have the samples. You know, no, no, you're, you're trying to figure out what do I want, like, what do I want a full cup of? And here's the amazing thing. They get one of those pink spoons and they reach down into the real ice cream, right? They don't pull out like a less good sample ice cream and go, if you like this, the other one's better. They reach out into the real thing, but you just get a little teeny tiny taste of it. And the idea is that you would get this little tiny taste of ice cream and go, ooh, I want a whole cone. Now, here's the image. We're God's pink spoon people. When people encounter us, when people encounter the way we love, the way we forgive, the way we bless, the way we're generous, the way that we tell the truth, the way we have integrity, the way that we depend on him, even when we feel weak, when people experience that, what we're doing is we're actually giving them a little taste of what life is like when Jesus is king. We're giving them a taste of the kingdom of God. We're saying, this is the real thing. It's not the whole thing. The whole thing happens when he comes back and he makes all things new, but this is a taste of the real kingdom of God. Don't you want in on this? That's the proposal. That's what God's offering. That's what God's inviting Israel and by extension, those of us in Christ. That's what he's offering us. So what's the response to this proposal? Well, it says in chapter 19, verse eight, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. My translation, she said yes. Right? So the proposal has happened. God has proposed to his people. Now, the next part of this story is really the rest of chapter 19, and that's the engagement. 
Now, I tend to be personally a fan of shorter engagements rather than long ones. I don't think there's any particular rules on it, but God seems to have a very short engagement here because he says, uh, here's what he says in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In other words, hey, when's this wedding happening? Three days. God's getting the move on. And so the rest of chapter 19 is about this time of preparation. And, and couples who get married, their engagement has lots of stuff to do to get ready. You gotta get flowers, you gotta arrange a photographer, you gotta get the license, you gotta do premarital counseling. There's all these things you do to prepare yourself and God says, that's what I want you to do. I want you to wash I want you to consecrate yourself. There's all these detailed instructions at chapter 19 about, hey, don't come up on this mountain. Don't go there, but prepare yourself. You're about to experience a covenant ceremony with God. Get ready. So that's what happens in chapter 19. Then in chapter 20, we get the vows. The vows, and that's what we read a moment ago. We know the vows as the 10 commandments or as the Decalogue or as the 10 words. But these really are vows, and these are special vows, right? The rest of this uh, next section of Exodus is gonna have lots and lots of laws and commands and parts of this covenant. The book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy are gonna have a lot more that they unpack about what God's expectations are for living in covenant community with him. But these 10 commands are special. Here's four reasons why they're special, just quickly. The first one is, these are the first laws given. They're the first things expected. The first stuff in the scripture usually is important. It matters. The second thing is, uh, these commands are given directly to the people without Moses going in between it. So up to this point, God talks to Moses, Moses talks to the people. What you see actually in chapter 20 is they're there at the mountain, they've consecrated themselves, they've gotten ready, and God talks straight to the people. After this, it'll go back through Moses again. But this is them hearing the voice of God himself, giving these 10 commands, giving these wedding vows. Third reason why these are special is these are the only, of all the different laws that God gives, these are the only ones that God himself writes on two tablets made of stone. That's going to be in Exodus chapter 34. And then the last reason, the fourth reason, is that these, these tablets then get placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which is part of Israel's worship from this time on. So these are the Ten Commandments. These are the Ten Vows. Now, here's what's fascinating when I think about a wedding. As I said, I've done a lot of different weddings. I've had a lot of different requests. Hey, can we do a sand ceremony? Can we do a unity candle? Can we do a wine ceremony? Can we do a this? Can we do a that? You know what I've never had? I've never had a couple say, you know what? We'd like to not do the vows. The vows are just, they're too binding. They're too restrictive. I mean, we love each other. We just don't want to do the vow part. I've never had a couple say that. No, there's a lot of couples that just functionally live that way and never get married. But when you decide, I want to actually enter into covenant with somebody, you fully expect that you're making some commitment. So here's what's interesting. We don't resist that when it comes to marriage, but when it comes to God, a lot of times, even Christians sort of try to go, whoa, 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 wait. Why should we keep the Ten Commandments? 
I thought Jesus set us free from all that. I thought we don't need to do all that. Do we still really need to keep these? And what I want you to hear is that that's like someone saying, I don't really want to take vows to get married. Now, why do we resist God's laws and God's commands? Why do we do this? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first one is just a modern reason, is we misunderstand freedom. We think, based on what kind of modern world has told us, that freedom is having no rules, no binding commitments, no regulations, no restrictions. We think freedom is doing whatever you want. But get this, true freedom is having the ability to do what's best. Mike Williams, who's a professor, has said this, freedom isn't having no master, but having the right master. See, everyone has a master. And a lot of times people who think, well, freedom is just doing whatever I want, actually become enslaved to whatever they want. They can't say no. This was a real vivid experience for me a number of months ago. I, um, after the five o'clock service, if you're new here, we do a 5 p.m. service. It's just like this service. And so at the end of that, a lot of times, you know, whoever's preaching, you're tired. And so I uh, went out to dinner with my family after that. And Molly took the little ones home and I had Abby and Caitlin and uh, it was like, hey, you know what? Let's go get some ice cream. And so we were over kind of in Queen Creek Marketplace. So we pulled into Target and you go all the way back to the store, uh, back of the store to where the ice cream is. And we're standing there and right as we're standing there and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, I don't need any ice cream. I don't know if I need any ice cream. Like this, this may not be a great idea, but we've walked all the way back here and the girls are really excited about it. But boy, do I want some ice cream. Like I'm tired. I did a good job preaching today. I'm, I deserve it. I need some ice cream. And I stood there for an awkwardly long amount of time in front of the thing, not debating which kind of ice cream, but in this internal war of like, ah, I probably shouldn't do this. To the point where Abby and Caitlin are like, uh, Dad, are you okay? Like, are we going to do this or what's going on? And I said, girls, I hate to disappoint you, but we're actually not going to get any ice cream. And they were like, what? Why, right? And I said, listen, here's the deal. I want to get this ice cream too badly to the point where I almost feel like I have to get it. And if I get it because I have to get it, then I'm not living real freedom. I'm actually enslaved. And I hate to do this to you because you got your hopes up and it's mean, and, but like, I need to live in freedom. Now, I wish I could tell you that I always live in that freedom, and I don't. But listen, freedom is that sometimes you do. You don't have to do what you want. We misunderstand that. We think, oh, just do whatever you want. The second reason why we uh, don't like laws and commands is we misunderstand the law. This is more of a religious reason. Right? A lot of people, even Christians, misunderstand the purpose of these laws, of these Ten Commandments. A lot of people think it's this. If I obey, 
then God will accept me. If I obey, then God will forgive me. If I obey, then God will save me. But notice the order in chapter 19 and in chapter 20. In chapter 19, verse 4, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did. I already saved you. I already rescued you. In chapter 20, verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's salvation came before the law. It did not come because they obeyed it. A lot of times people go, well, well, people in the Old Testament, they got to heaven by obeying the laws. People in the Old Testament experienced relationship with God by God's saving grace. And then God takes people he saved and he gives them new power and a new desire and an ability then to say, okay, follow me, walk with me, live these vows with me. If, if you misunderstand that, you'll think, oh, the law's stupid. We don't need that anymore because Jesus died to forgive us and we're saved by grace. They were saved by grace too. We also misunderstand the law. We think the law is only given to try to point out how we can't keep it. And, and by the way, the scripture, Jesus himself does do this, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even lust. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Right, so one of the functions of the law is to point out that you can't really fully obey God, but that's not the only one. It's not the only function. This is God's good gift as a God who loves his people and wants them to experience life and blessing. I've found over the years you can tell a lot about a couple by the way they write their vows. You can tell, are they traditional? They just want the traditional vows. A lot of couples want to write their own, which I think is like interesting, but they always write stuff that they're never going to keep. Like, like I've heard couples that are like, I will always laugh at your jokes. I will all, and it's like, you won't even do that today. Like, you're going to break this now, right? Like, but you can kind of tell a lot about how people do this, right? And here's the thing. You can tell a lot about God by the vows he wants his people to keep. And so that's what the Ten Commandments are. Some of you are going, wow, you're just now getting the Ten Commandments. Yeah, we're clearly doing an overview, okay? We'll save the Ten Commandments maybe for a whole sermon series someday, but I wanna give you the big picture, and here's the big picture of these vows, of these commands, of the law. The law is given in such a way that it reveals who God is, it reveals what's important to him, and when people do it, it glorifies God, and it benefits them. The law, when we obey God, glorifies him. When we keep these vows, it honors him and it benefits us. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna just kind of run through these 10 commandments and show you how for every single one of them, it glorifies, it honors God, and it benefits God's people. So the first command, have no other gods before me. Don't worship anything, don't have any other affections that are higher up, that are more central, that are more important than me. How does this glorify God? It shows that he is alone worthy, that he's the only one. Right, this is what you do when you make a marriage vow. You say, I forsake all others, just you. And it honors them when you live that way. 
Same thing, when we honor, when we have no other gods, it glorifies him. It also benefits Israel by allowing them to know the only true God. Because if you love other gods, they ain't there. Now, by the way, you would never break commands two through 10 unless you break command one first. Once relationship of honoring God is not that important, you're now open to do all sorts of other things. Here's the second command, no idols, no images. God's basically saying, here's what, I, I can't be represented by any creaturely statue. Don't do that. How does this glorify God? It doesn't reduce him to something he isn't. That honors him. But it benefits Israel. It keeps them from false ideas of God. God is not a calf. So don't melt down your stuff, Israel, which they'll do in about a dozen chapters. Don't melt down your stuff and worship the calf as though it were God. That's a false image. They're, they're not benefited by doing that. Third command, reverence for God's name. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This doesn't just refer to cuss words, but this is also talking about don't carry the name of God and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and not live like it. That glorifies God because it honors him as holy, but it also benefits us by protecting us from divine judgment. The fourth command is to keep the Sabbath, to have one day out of six where you rest and you worship. Now, this is so funny to me because a lot of people today are like, do we have to keep the Sabbath? And I just imagine the difference between how we experience this command that we ought to take a Sabbath and how the Israelites, who just had 400 years and never a day off, and now God goes, hey, every week you should take a day off. They're like, yes. And we're like, do I have to? And this glorifies God when we take a day of rest. It shows that he's the source of our life, that we don't trust our own production and our own money and our own skill. We trust him. It benefits Israel. It gives them rest. It gives them worship. Now, these first four commands are all vertical. This is about the relationship that we're to have with God, you know, directly to him. These next six commands are horizontal, right? So if you kind of imagine that we, God has made himself known to Israel, says, hey, here's the life that we're going to have now together. But now God wants to make himself known through Israel to the nations. Well, how's that going to take place? By the way they treat one another. So look at command five. It's to honor parents. How does this glorify God? This glorifies God by allowing generational faithfulness. When parents are honored, they teach who God is, and generations are able to walk with God faithfully because those parents are honored. This benefits Israel by preserving their blessings and their wisdom. If you ignore the previous generation, you quickly become a fool. Don't be a fool. That's what God's saying. Command six, don't murder by the way, this is a different word from the word kill. This isn't referring to battle. It's not referring to an, a war or an execution by an authorized government. This is talking about the taking of someone's life who's innocent. Don't murder. Why does that glorify God? What well, honors men who are made in God's image? And it benefits us by not getting killed. It's good if you can make it through life and not get killed. 
We don't oppress one another. Seventh, no adultery. This honors God. It gives him the pleasure of multiplying his image. God is honored as generations are able to grow up in faithful homes where there's not all the dysfunction that comes through cheating. It protects marriages. It protects family. Eighth, no stealing. This shows that people are content in God, that I don't need other stuff to be happy. I trust him. That honors him. It also makes it where we're benefited because we protect each other's rights to property. What's yours is yours. It's not mine. I don't think it to just take it. Ninth command, no false testimony. A lot of times people say this is don't lie. Uh, that's actually too broad. No false testimony here is referring to um, in contracts, in court situations, to um, not formally tell false testimony. This honors God. It allows judgments that honor him. It promotes truth and justice. That's good for us. And then finally, no coveting. Interesting, this one then gets to the heart. A lot of the other ones you can really tell, but the coveting is just something that happens internally. Don't want stuff that's not yours, is what God's saying. And that leads people to be content in God. That honors him, and it allows us to be protected from destructive jealousy. So do you see this? These vows are good. They're a gift. They're a blessing. Now, if you try to use them to earn God's favor, it won't work because you're not gonna be able to keep these 100%. But that wasn't the intention. The intention was that you would remember how God has saved you, how God has loved you, how God has pursued you, and then delight to obey him. So some people ask, well, so do we still have to keep the 10 commandments? And I wanna ask, Why wouldn't you want to? Do you want to live in a world filled with adultery? And the taking of innocent life? And workaholism? And hypocrisy? Like, is that the world you want? No. So do we have to keep them? We want to. And here's the thing, this is consistent with the gospel. A lot of times people go, well, there's the law, and that's bad, and then there's the gospel, and that's good. No, this is consistent. God is saving a people. God is securing a people. God is washing his people with his word. This is God saying, I've made you my bride. Now go live like it for all the world to see. And I'll be honored, and you'll be blessed. It's a good thing. Now, here's the most amazing part. Every time I've done a wedding, every time we've done the vows, whether they were the traditional ones or ones that they wrote themselves, every person making those vows expects that the other person will keep them. But when God goes through this covenant, he knows that his people will not them. He knows they will be faithless. He knows they will wander away. You won't even get out of this book of the Bible before they're breaking all of these. And so God didn't say, well, then I guess you can't be my people anymore. You couldn't do it. You're not my treasured possession. No. God, the faithful groom, puts on flesh 
and moves into our world and lives as the faithful Jew among Jews who could not keep this covenant, who did not walk with God faithfully, who did not have hearts set on him, and Jesus obeys, and Jesus experiences the blessing of that, and then Jesus actually suffers and dies at the hands of people who murder him because they had other things more important than God, and even that doesn't shatter God's plan, and Jesus rises from the dead, victorious, to give us new hearts, to make us his treasured people, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of this God. He sends us out as his people, he fills us with his power, and he gives us a better way to live. That's good news. He's gonna cleanse us, he's gonna wash us, he's gonna empower us, he's gonna send us. And the end of the story of the scriptures is of what? A wedding feast. And we get to be his forgiven, cleansed, precious bride. That's good news, let's pray. Father, thank you for how you are faithful even when we are faithless. God, thank you that you keep your promises when we break ours. God, thank you for rescuing us by grace. Thank you for empowering us with your spirit. And thank you for giving us instruction on how to live in ways that are wise, ways that honor you, ways that benefit us. God, could we be a people who as we walk with you, even with all of our imperfections, could we still be that pink spoon people who give the world around us the taste of how sweet it is to know you. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Amen.